When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Hey everyone, I'm Stephen Hyden. And I'm Jordan Runtog. Join us as we unveil our new music podcast, Rivals. It's a look back at famous music rivalries of the past. Every week, Jordan and I will explore a new rivalry, delving into all the dirty details about our beloved musical icons who just can't seem to get along with their fellow legends. And then we'll debate each other about who deserves to have the upper hand in these classic conflicts. You'll remember the biggest beast from music history and hopefully become aware of some you didn't know. Join us on Rivals, a new podcast from iHeartRadio debuting on February 26th. Listen and follow on the the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. So just as a reminder for listeners out there, um, a little while ago in podcast history, Molly and I did an episode on human trafficking and sex trafficking. And one aspect of sex trafficking that we didn't get to address that really needs to be talked about, I think, even more than it is in the media and elsewhere is the issue of child marriage and child brides. Right. Yeah. Imagine if you were eight years old living in Afghanistan or India, mm-hmm. um, some states, uh, you don't get to dream about your wedding day the same way that girls in the West do. Right. Maybe you, uh, a lot of girls in poor rural societies are betrothed to much older men, some before they're born, mm-hmm. some when they're very young and a lot are married off when they're eight, 10, 12 years old. Right. And a lot of times, uh, once a girl, uh, the standard for, a, a girl being marriageable in a lot of these um, communities because it, it varies by con- from country to country and then also from tribe to tribe, community to community, state to state. Once a girl has her menarche, gets her first period, she is marriageable. And like you said, Caroline, sometimes they're even betrothed long before that might happen. Right. So let's take a step back maybe and, and provide a global outlook on where child marriage is most prominent and how many girls are being wedded off. Right. Uh, Most of these marriages of young girls and older men take place in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Um, According to UNICEF, in the Middle East, North Africa, and other parts of Asia, um, marriage at or shortly after puberty is common. Mm -hmm. Um, some, Some cultures believe, especially if they're living in a violent community, maybe there's civil strife going on Mm -hmm. that as soon as a girl has her period and she can therefore technically reproduce, then she's just a magnet for trouble. Right. And by trouble, you mean things like having sex or even being sexually assaulted, raped, 
Um, and just to put some, some numbers around this, according to a 2009 article in the Review in Obstetrics and Gynecology, in South Asia, 31 million marriages include girls under 18. In Sub-Saharan Africa, that number is 14 million. And in Latin America and the Caribbean, it's 6.6 million. And obviously in the, in the United States, um, girls under 18, um, might end up in, in similar kind of situations, but it is, far less common. Um, and the number one country where this is a problem would be Niger, where um, they have the highest rate of child marriage at 76.6%. And I believe by, by child marriage, this means girls under 18 right. who are married. And that's followed by Chad, Bangladesh, Mali, and Guinea. Right. Um, now, there is uh, one writer... And uh, it was, I think it's obstetrics and gynecology pointed out that there are different terms that people use mm-hmm. for when, for when young girls are married off. Um, a lot of people use the term child bride or early marriage. Mm-hmm. And she argues that the writer argues that these are not sufficient terms to express what's really going on. Her, her point is that child bride sounds almost like, yay, we're getting married. Yeah, and that's, that's just not appropriate. No. Um, <laughs> Early marriage doesn't quite paint the right picture either because, I mean, I think it's an early marriage if someone who's 19 gets married. Right. So that doesn't quite indicate what we're talking about today, which is young children. Mm -hmm. And those, the pros and cons of that kind of terminology reminds me of conversations that will often come up between uh, female circumcision versus female genital mutilation. Some say that, you know, in, in a similar way, female circumcision seems to sort of soften uh, the actual procedure of, of what's going on that is more like genital mutilation, which right. obviously has a much harsher, harsher edge. Um, so I guess in the, in the advocacy world, child marriage is the preferred term. And, uh, just to, just to offer a little bit of insight on a, a case study on why this happens in Niger, like I said, that has the, the highest rate of child marriage. It really comes out of a need to follow tradition and really reinforce ties between communities and protect girls from out of wedlock pregnancy. Like you brought up, Caroline, once a girl has her period, she can get pregnant. Um, and that can be a huge, um, if that happens, she'll be ostracized. Um, and it's a way to prevent that. This isn't born out of, you know, hatred for these girls and trying to subject them to miserable lives of, of marriages that, that aren't of their choosing. Right. Um, but, but a lot of very common threads that, that run throughout all of these different situations. Right. And, you know, you mentioned protecting the girls, sending mm-hmm. them off to get married to protect them. But in that obstetrics and gynecology article, the writer points out that actually the opposite effect Mm -hmm. happens in that early marriages actually make it more likely that the young wives will contract diseases and be victims of sexual violence by their husbands. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you think about it, you know, these girls are young. They haven't had sexual partners. You know, that's exactly why some of these men are marrying them, because they're young, they're pure, they haven't had other partners. Um, But the men have. And in a lot of cases, they have other wives. So if they've contracted diseases, they're going to end up giving it to these young girls who, because of, you know, how they are set up biologically, being so young and not fully developed, they're actually more prone to contracting these uh, sexually transmitted infections because of injuries they could sustain 
during sexual intercourse. Right. Just to give you an idea, um, in, I believe this is coming from UNICEF in Uganda, the HIV prevalence rate of married girls and single girls between the ages of 15 and 19 years is 89% and 66% respectively. And that's, that's the 89% for, the married young girls versus 66% for the single girls and their rates of contracting HPV and cervical cancer and developing cervical cancer are much higher um, than the general population. But let's, let's back up for a little bit and, and talk about a little bit more about why this happens because um, as listeners probably assume this is going on in what are called traditional societies, which UNICEF would define as consisting of extended families, young ages at marriage, spouses chosen by elders, um, absorption of the newlywed into households, basically like the young girl becomes part of her new husband's household. She's taken away from her family. Right. Maybe, yeah. Um, And then having as many children right away as you can. Right. It extends fertility when you start having babies at, you know, 12, well, I don't know, 14 you know, years old, you are going to be having babies for a long time. Mm-hmm. But the notion, though, of your parents picking your partner for you is not all that uncommon. Right. It's not weird to them. Mm-hmm. But it, what is weird is the idea of a woman you know, growing up in her family, having a normal adolescence, you know, what we consider normal, Mm -hmm. developing a sense of identity and choosing her own partner. Right. And if anyone's ever read um, A History of Marriage by Stephanie Coons, you know that marriage way before the the evolution of what we have today um, in terms of a love marriage where, you know, I can, you know, fall in love with whoever I want and put a put a ring on and, and make it happen. Uh, marriage has always been since the dawn of the dawn of marriage, the dawn of marriage, <laughs> uh, since we've been doing it, it's always been a tool for economic security, mm-hmm. communal bonding and paternalistic sexual protection. Right. Those three things. And those are the things that still come up over and over again. And it's not so much an issue with parents having a role in selecting who you're going to marry. That still happens mm-hmm. all the time in India and, it's not necessarily a problem, but when that happens with 13 year olds, 14 year olds being right. married off for economic reasons, that's when it, yeah, is a, a, problem. a big, a big aspect of this, uh, child marriage is that, uh, these women or girls, I should say, come from really poor rural mm-hmm. families and their, their families just consider them a burden, a financial burden. And so we did talk a little bit about the protection from violence and, and sexual violence. But uh, another big aspect is the financial aspect. Yeah, uh, there was a story recently on women's e-news about so-called drought brides in Kenya right now because there's terrible drought going on in Kenya. And for some families, the only way that they are able to get any kind of money or any kind of food in their household is through dowries for their daughters. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, there's been an uptick in these um, drought-ridden areas in child marriage just so that they can get some kind of food on the table. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, a groom's family could give money or cattle, horses, mm-hmm. you know, what, whatever, whatever the uh, bride's family can use to make money. And Kristen, going back to Uganda, 
Uh, in the northern part of the country, um, some parents have been known to marry off their daughters to members of the militia, mm-hmm. uh, not only to gain maybe honor, maybe a slightly higher social status, but to actually just gain protection um, from people, other people who might threaten them. Um, actually, and according to UNICEF, child marriage is on the rise in countries that are experiencing civil strife. These countries um, that show higher rates of child slavery, slavery and trafficking, um, that have more children on the streets and high levels of neglect and abandonment. These are the countries that are showing a rise in child marriage because who's going to protect my kid? I can't right. afford to do it. So Right. And that's a point that Stella Schumacher, who is a UNICEF child protection specialist in New York, made. She says often families marry off girls very young because they want to protect them, not realizing the dangers that they face. It requires a change of social norms and legislation isn't enough because kind of going back to, you know, a comment that we made earlier, this isn't, um, these families don't wish doom and gloom on their, their daughters. A lot of times it is culturally, culturally ingrained or either forced through economic conditions or right. civil unrest. Yeah. If your mother, your grandmother, your great grandmother, if they all went through it, that's what they know. Right. You know, m- maybe it's not their ideal situation either, but it's, the tradition in their culture. Right. Um, but even if it is, has become a generational cycle, even if it is linked to poverty and civil unrest and perhaps parents have, you know, these, uh, very paternalistic ideas of, you know, protecting their daughter's honor by sort of sending them off before they even have a chance to be deflowered. Uh, it is dangerous. It puts these girls in, in such direct, Harm right. physically, um, premature pregnancy happens so much more often when you have these underage brides. Right. And by premature, I mean, we mean these girls should not be getting pregnant because of the damage it can do to their body and the damage it can do to the baby itself. Mm-hmm. Um, young girls are actually 15 times more likely to die during childbirth, according to PBS. They, they had a series about, um, child marriage. And I didn't know this, but it's actually, uh, the leading cause of death worldwide for girls 15 to 19. Yeah. And even if uh, these young girls survive childbirth, a lot of times um, they might have irreversible health problems such as fistula, which causes chronic incontinence and often leads to abandonment and isolation because they're just ostracized from from their group. Their husband wants nothing to do with them. Society wants nothing to do with them. And there are 2 million girls living with a fistula, a lot of which is related to this kind of uh, forceful sex at a very young age, childbirth at a very young age. There have been um, a number of stories about child brides who have bled to death mm-hmm. after their their husbands have had sex with them for the first time because their their bodies are so small right. they, they there, can't take it. There was a National Geographic article that mentioned at the very end uh, a 13-year-old girl who was taken to the hospital four days after she was married. Mm-hmm. Um, her, basically, her internal organs had suffered major damage because of sexual intercourse with her husband. And it's also not good if they do have a child. It's it's not good for um, the, the odds of the baby surviving birth is not very good. Infant mortality for mothers under the age 20 is about um, 60 to 75 percent higher than it is for the general population. Right. And I mean, these women are experiencing abuse, too. They're more likely to 
experienced sexual abuse, um, beating, abandonment. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not a good situation. Yeah, there is um, a pretty intense uh photo essay from Foreign Policy magazine that we found online. And one of the photos showed, I think he was a 35-year-old husband who had tried to kill his 15-year-old wife, ended up killing the grand, her grandmother right. in the process. But you do hear anecdotally from the, you know, the advocacy workers who are going in and trying to and the practice of child marriage, a lot of you hear about a lot of times because the girls are separated from their families and taken away and they might never see their family again. There's a lot of domestic violence that goes along with that. And of course, if these girls are married off so young, they're not going to complete their education. Right. It just sort of fosters a cycle of illiteracy, mm-hmm. not only illiteracy, but poverty, of course, too, because if you don't get an education, how can you raise your socioeconomic status? Right. Get a better job or get a job at all. If you are taken as a child directly from your parents, you know, maybe you had a little schooling, but if you're taken directly out of your house, Mm -hmm. you know, married off to some older man, when are you going to advance your education? You don't get the chance to develop your intellect, develop a sense of self, develop any self-confidence. So you are more likely to be not only subservient, but um, manipulated by your husband. Yeah. And, and that's such an important key in terms of development in a lot of these countries. Um, like we've talked about many times during the podcast, women are the key to, like you said, ending cycles of poverty and raising up socioeconomic levels. Studies have shown over and over again that when you educate the mothers, then the, it passes along to the children. Not mm-hmm. to say that the men don't need help and attention as well, but a lot of times, like if you give, if you get monetary aid to to the women in the house, it will. They're better stewards of that than the men are. Similarly, with uh, with education, and if you want to learn more about that, I highly recommend reading Half the Sky by. Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wu Dunn, which we have mentioned before on the podcast. Well, according to the International Center for Research on Women, eight or more years of schooling makes it much less likely that a girl will marry early. Mm-hmm. She gets to develop that uh, sense of intellect, sense of self, and have a sort of a childhood, a real childhood. Yeah, and I one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that in 1948, the UN adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which states that individuals must enter into marriage freely with full consent and must be a full age. So uh, a child marriage is a violation of human rights. Right. This is a major human rights issue that we're talking about. And I, until I started doing research on this, you know, you hear about child marriage, um, but you don't realize how widespread it is. I think one of the estimates that I saw was by 2020, there would be a hundred million girls between now and 2020, a hundred million girls. Yeah. Well, so many of them go unregistered. Oh yeah. Because in a lot of communities there, the weddings are held not that frequently or they're held in secret. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, they don't, it's not like they go to the courthouse and get a, a wedding license, a marriage license for an eight-year-old. Right. Um, but going back to that education piece, um, Sri Lanka and the state of Kerala in India both have high rates for first mar- or high ages, I should say, for first marriages. And they also happen to share the priority of education for men and women, which sparks greater support for women's rights. Right. They get to, there's actual conversations and, and, Opinions developed about consent, mm-hmm. consent to marriage or sexual intercourse. Um, there's greater support for 
delaying marriage. Right. And there's um, a nonprofit organization called the Virney Project, which um, is operating in, I forget the state that it's operating in, in, uh, in India, but they go into these communities and really focus on educating the women, educating the females, trying to break those, um, those generational cycles to keep the girls in school, which in effect delays marriage. And one person we have to talk about mm-hmm. before in this podcast is Najud Ali. Oh, yes. Yes, she was married at a very young age um, to a man much older. Yes. And she managed to escape. She took some pennies, a couple of coins, got mm-hmm. on the bus, went to the courthouse. And she sat there until someone finally said, um, what are you doing? Yeah. And she said, I want a divorce. And the judge, she had a female attorney who helped her. Um, and she was granted a divorce. And the thing is, it captured worldwide attention. Well, she was 10 years old yeah. at the time. Uh, I think Time Magazine said she's the youngest known divorcee in the world. And this was in 2008. Right. And she actually, her story inspired two other girls soon thereafter from her village to get uh, to get divorces also, sue for divorces. And also thanks to her testimony, Yemen raised its minimal age for marriage from 15 to 18. But that said, a lot of these countries where this is happening, the minimum marriage age is 18. Right. But it's going on under the table because this is all about um, dowries and economic exchanges and survival. Exactly. Well, I think what really struck me was at the very end of that article about this poor girl. Um, I mean, good for her for getting out of that situation. But this quote that she has, the uh, she was interviewed. And the interviewer asked her whether she hopes to meet her Prince Charming one day. And this little girl, 10 years old, is already cynical. She sits back in the chair. She folds her arms across her chest and she says, I no longer think about marriage. Sure. I mean, yeah, 10 years old, you've been traumatized. You've already gone through a divorce. Yeah. Yeah. You might be considering some other issues. (laughs) Like education. That's her number one priority when the the people were the reporter was talking to her was education. She wanted to go to college. Yeah. I think she wanted to be a lawyer, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to, uh, shed more light on child marriage because I, I personally think that it deserves a lot more attention. Right. And UNICEF has said that they don't think that not only the media, but actual women and children's rights groups, they don't mm-hmm. think that, uh, these groups give enough attention to it. Sure. Well, hopefully, you know, the more people who talk about it, listeners, tell tell your friends. Be that person talking about child marriage. Yeah. I know it's a downer topic. It is a little bit, but, but you need to spread to know. the word. It is good to know. And if you are interested in learning more about what you can do to help or organizations that are combating child marriage around the world, check out care.org. Um, UNICEF is working on it. The International Organization for Women's Development and the Virney Project, which I mentioned earlier, are just a few of the nonprofits and NGOs out there working to keep these girls in school um, and break generational cycles of child marriage. Mm-hmm. And if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share with me and Caroline about this issue or any other topic on your mind, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And in the meantime, uh, we have a couple emails for you. I've got one here. Um, not to totally switch gears, but to totally switch gears. <laughs> I have one here from Ethan in regard to our douche podcast. Oh, let's hear it. 
He says, my question is regarding the use of douchebag as a pejorative. I happen to love the term, and in this era of sensitivity, many of the insults that we casually tossed about in our childhood are verboten, and justly so, in my opinion. However, I'd really love to keep douchebag in the lexicon. Now, since douching is actually an unhealthy concept thought up by businesses that uh, don't have women's health in mind, and since they're sold to undereducated or ill-informed people based on insecurities that societies instill... Can the case be made that douching is evil and therefore it is okay for us to continue using douche and douchebag as insults, provided, of course, that we are not regressing to the 60s unattractive co-ed use? Sure. I'm fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely fine with making fun of, of douching. Yeah. Uh, because, like, like Ethan said, it is unhealthy. Right. Well, I have an email from Kristen. Not you, another one. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is another tall Kristen. Ah. She says, uh, I'm a five foot 11 and three quarters woman of Germanic Ooh. and Scandinavian descent. My husband is a five, eight or almost man of Chinese descent. When we started dating in college, I did feel awkward dating someone four inches shorter than me. But as a friend told me at the time, all men are the same height lying down. Boom. I'm really glad I didn't dismiss him or have height requirements for dating like I've heard other women do. After all, I'm sure I've been overlooked because of my height. Our son has my height and my husband's good looks, so he has the best of both worlds. Dreamboat. Yeah, sounds good. (laughs) Well, Kristen and Ethan, thanks for those emails. And thanks to everyone else who has emailed us. Um, And also thanks to everyone who has headed over to Facebook, like you should do right now if you haven't already, and leave a comment and like us, uh, say hello. You can also catch us over on Twitter. Our handle is at MomStuffPodcast. And again, our email address is MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, you can check out what we're doing during the week on our blog. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? So here's something that some of you might find shocking. of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.